When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to this episode of the New Books Network. My name is Jolie Ho, and you are listening to the Psychology Channel. It is my absolute honor and privilege to introduce Dr. Pauline Boss and discuss her latest book titled The Myth of Closure, Ambiguous Loss in a Time of Pandemic and Change. Dr. Boss is a professor emeritus at the University of Minnesota, and she is a researcher, theorist, and pioneer in psychology and psychotherapy, particularly in the interdisciplinary study of family stress and its applications to family therapy. She is renowned for her work in ambiguous loss, a term she first coined and researched in the 1970s, and also the topic of our conversation today. Additionally, she holds 40 years of clinical experience working with families of those physically missing, so this could be from war or natural disaster, as well as families of loved ones who may be missing psychologically, such as through dementia or traumatic brain injury. In Dr. Boss's recent book, she conceptualizes our vague feelings of distress caused by the COVID-19 pandemic and also other overlapping events as a product of ambiguous loss and thus lacking closure and what that means for us. The book also provides strategies for coping with ambiguity and grief during this time, while still looking towards the future with hope and possibility. So Pauline, thank you so much for being here with me today to discuss your book. It's my pleasure, Jolie. Thank you. So you've worked extensively in this area of research um, and clinically for ambiguous loss, and you have several books on the topic and have published extensively on this as well. Could you explain for our listeners what ambiguous loss is and also what led you to write this book with the current context of the pandemic in mind? Well, ambiguous loss is simply um, a, an unclear loss. Uh, it, it has no verification, no validation with o- official death certificates. Uh, there just is no information about the whereabouts and the fate of the person who is lost. There are two kinds. One is, phys- as you mentioned, one is physical ambiguous loss, 
where somebody is physically missing. You, you don't know where they are. You don't know where their body is. You have no remains to bury. You don't know if they're dead or alive. A more common example, however, uh, is divorce. And also it would be adoption, uh, where you, you know somebody is alive, but you don't know where they are. Or with divorce, for example, if children are involved, the, the uh, ex-partner keeps coming back into your life, even though they're not part of your relationship anymore. The second kind of ambiguous loss is psychological. And that is where the person is there, perhaps right in front of you, uh, but they are psychologically and cognitively gone or going, such as with Alzheimer's disease and the over 80 other kinds of uh, conditions and illnesses that cause dementia. So it's very, very common. But it could also be with addiction. Uh, it could be with serious mental illness and so on, where the person is not the way they used to be, uh, and you can't predict which way they'll be on which day. More common examples would be um, our preoccupation with our devices, our telephones and the media, so that when we're with children or with a partner or with a friend, um, we're looking down at our device and psychologically absent, but physically present. I probably got interested in this latest book. Um, I'm 87, and I didn't intend to write another book, but it's been on my mind, actually, since 2015, and just didn't get written, as some books don't, until, you know, the universe aligns. Um, I, I got interested in ambiguous loss, um, a long time ago when I was a graduate student, actually in the early 1970s, and then wrote about it finally when I was a visiting professor at Harvard in the 1990s. Why did I get interested in it? Um, there, there are two answers. Um, one is that I was a graduate student in a seminar at the University of Wisconsin with Carl Whitaker, a very well-known family therapy pioneer. And he would see whole families, uh, even though the identified patient was the child. And fathers kept saying, why am I here? Remember, this was the 1970s. The fathers would say, the children are mother's business. I shouldn't be here. I need to be at work. So I saw that pattern continuously and then wrote my first academic paper, which was psychological father absence in intact families. Meanwhile, I was studying over in sociology uh, theory construction, and my professor there said, it's about more than fathers, Pauline. Raise your um, label to a higher level. So it took a long time, it took a while, but I came up with the term ambiguous loss meaning that anybody can be ambiguously lost, psychologically absent, while physically present. And then my first research turned out to be with the physical ambiguous loss, the families of soldiers missing in action in Vietnam and Southeast Asia. But really, upon reflection over the years, I grew up in an immigrant family. Um, my father, um, immigrated by default from Switzerland. He came here to study 
uh, for two years, but then it was 1929, the Great Depression, and he didn't have the funds to get back. And meanwhile, he fell in love with the girl next door and, and of course, married and stayed here. I saw him from the time I can remember um, being sad when letters would arrive from Switzerland and especially letters with black borders around them, which meant some, somebody in his family died. He would be grieving, and I didn't know who for. I knew there was another family somewhere, but because of World War II, there was absolutely no connection, and very few letters got through. Uh, those that did um, today bring tears to my eyes about the longing for each other. Uh, across the ocean. So I think I grew up around ambiguous loss and actually in a village of all immigrants. So it became of interest to me and I was observing people and I think I took it in. And when I needed a better term than psychological father absence, I came up with ambiguous loss because I think I grew up with it. Right. That is so fascinating, like tracing back to when you first started with this topic and also some of the personal background, too, that you've been able to share. Um, and I was wondering as well, um, how does ambiguous loss apply to this situation that we've now found ourselves in over the past two years with COVID-19 and the and the pandemic and just all the changes that have occurred recently. Well, I think I think what we're what we're seeing now is a world that is grieving uh, for for many reasons, but a major reason being the pandemic. And and even in our community, we don't have to look far to see that why people are feeling uh, sad, they're feeling anxious, sometimes they're feeling angry. There are all kinds of strong feelings right now that people have not noticed before, um, unless perhaps there was a death in the family, when, of course, that's traumatic for, for anyone. What has happened was traumatic. Uh, we, found, we found ourselves uh, submissive to a power greater than ourselves, which was this invisible virus that surrounded the globe, frankly. And... Many of us um, are not accustomed to that. That is, especially for um, the younger generation, younger than I am, um, <laughs> uh, life has been pretty good for some time. There have not been uh, world wars. Uh, there has not been a pandemic since the polio epidemic. Uh, and, and so life has been pretty good. It's gone the way we wanted. And all of a sudden you have something that takes away uh, your freedom to, for daily routines, your freedom to see your grandparents, your freedom to be with somebody who might in fact be ill or dying at the hospital. Um, we, we have lost our trust in the world as a safe place. These are ambiguous losses. But of course, there were clear-cut losses as well, like a death in the family, like loss of money loss of your job, loss of your uh, home. So we've been swarmed with losses during the past two years. 
And many of us, if there wasn't a death in the family, we don't think we have a loss. So my purpose was to say to people, sometimes you are distressed, even traumatized, and you don't know why, because there hasn't been a death in the family, there was no accident, etc. But you've had an ambiguous loss, which also requires grieving, and your body grieves even if you don't know it. That is, you have symptoms that you have lost something, stress symptoms. And, and what people need to know is that's because of the environment, not because of their weakness. And thus the ambiguous loss model provides a, a um, framework for looking at symptoms in a new way. You don't just look at the, at the person's psyche, you look at what's going on in their life, a more systemic version of doing therapy, of assessing a person's symptoms. Right. And we've already touched a little bit on the topic of grief so far, and, and we've established that grief is not necessarily exclusive to the death of a loved one. We talked about how it could be something such as uh, a divorce or a loss of a relationship or grieving the loss of a routine. And we often hear people wanting to seek closure in these instances. So contrary to this popular belief, in what ways is closure a myth and how is it different from the idea of certainty? Oh, yes. Well, closure is a perfectly good word when it comes to real estate deals, business contracts. Um, but it's a very harmful and cruel word to use with human relationships. Once you've been attached to someone, even if there's some negativity in it, they, that attachment has become part of who you are or what you react to. And even if that person dies, uh, that attachment remains part of who you are. Yes, it's transformed. As Once someone dies, it's transformed. You recognize the fact that they're no longer living. But you keep them in your heart and mind. Uh, I use my grandmother's and mother's recipes. Um, I um, very often I wear my sister's jewelry very often uh, and so on. And in my little brother who died of polio when I was 19, um, he, he died the summer before the sock vaccine came out. His picture is right here still uh, beside me. So uh, it, it is a remembrance of the people who were important in your life. You don't forget them. You understand that the relationship is transformed. Um, but you do something to honor them. You live a life to honor them, or you find a purpose in life, as we did with the March of Dimes. Our whole family got very busy collecting dimes for research after our little Eddie died. Um, you see that happening a lot. People find a purpose in their pain. Right. And it sounds like, as well, that acknowledgement of the loss is also a key part of processing it and of being able to live with that. Yes, 
Yes, you obviously um, you need to know that the transformation has taken place. The person is no longer breathing. That that they are they have died. You need to acknowledge that, but you don't need to detach, as Freud said, and as Kubler Ross early on. Let me say, um, people misunderstood her five stages of grief when she meant meant them for the five stages for the dying person. Um, and so people think that if you do the five stages, you're done with grief. No, you're not. And Kubler-Ross herself said that. And we need to read uh, her last two books with Kessler, which make that point. She says it's messy. It's not linear. Uh, and she said, I'm more than the five stages. She was pleading with people to understand that she had changed in her mind. Um, and Freud, too, uh, in his personal writings, you will see that when a, a patient said to him, I'm sorry about your daughter's death from the flu in 1920, and he said, oh, no, she's still here, and he patted his vest pocket, where he must have had some memento of her in there. So he kept her psychologically present, too, except that he always talked about detachment. So... So we need to um, rethink the grief and loss literature. Um, my contribution is adding a new kind of loss to the discussion that had heretofore not been acknowledged at all. Uh, but the grief for both clear and ambiguous losses um, goes on for a lifetime, although um, it's, it's like it ebbs and flows and those oscillations get farther apart over time. Um, but even, let's say, 20 years from now, if you saw something, something that reminded you of the person you love, you might still have a tear. Um, you know, my, my sister loved uh, bright clothes, and uh, she, was, she, was very, uh, she was a party person, and she was very lively. And to this day, when I see a red dress in a store window, I stop and have a, a moment of sadness flies by for me because it reminds me of her, and I loved her. So that's normal grief. You don't forget. You remember. There is no closure. Right. And so much of our grief and laws that we've been focusing on recently over, well, for over two years now, and, and for listeners, uh, we are currently recording in the middle of March of 2022, which is why we keep saying two years, but um, COVID has been on the forefront of our minds for these past two years. But apart from COVID, our world and our society has continued to spin in, in various ways, and many other events have taken place since then as well. And uh, to shift from COVID a little bit, in your book, you also write about the murder of George Floyd in May of 2020, which happened in Minneapolis, where you reside, and also the subsequent movement um, against police brutality, against racism, certainly not for the first time, but probably to happen on such a large scale to this magnitude, especially during a pandemic, was extremely notable. And so in the book, you, you conceptualize racism as 
unresolved loss, but at the same time, acknowledge that it is a continual and current traumatic experience. So how can we best reconcile both healing from past transgressions or past harm when we are also still living in this ongoing context of structural and systemic racism and all the losses that are still coming along with that? Is there a way that we can balance those two aspects of it? Well, I think that we're a product of all the losses we've ever had. And and so when I was doing a clinical work, I would ask clients to um, begin with the first loss they remember that really um, meant a lot to them, which really knocked them down, even if they were a child. And um, what I call that is a pileup of losses. And then, and then we would determine which ones were clear-cut losses, like my grandma died, uh, or ambiguous losses, like um, my father deserted us, um, and as examples. And, and then you have to do that in order to deal with the present-day loss. And so much of the time, what we do is we see someone uh, and and you're hearing it in the media today. There's a great mental health crisis right now. Well, I wish we would reframe that. It's not all mental uh, health, meaning you have a problem. It means the environment has a problem. Um, the the police killings, for example, the in the climate change, for example, uh, war in the Ukraine, for example. And then the past two years, COVID, and we may we don't even know if we're safe now, if there's going to be a variant of a variant. Um, the environment is pathological right now. And so many people have been very resilient and should pass them, pat themselves on the back if they're still standing. That's how I see it. And that the anxiety that we're feeling and the sadness sometimes and the anger comes from living in this very tense situation right now. The anxiety is coming from the outside. Yes, some people have a serious mental health problem and need to seek professional help, but that's the minority. The majority of us, if we have some acknowledgement of what we've lost, and, some, and get some direction on coping mechanisms for those kinds of losses, ambiguous or clear losses, we can help ourselves and help each other as opposed to everybody going into therapy. There aren't enough psychotherapists to go around. I have learned that after 9-11 when we were called into New York um, because it was known that I worked with families of the missing. Um, when we did uh, multiple family groups, so at meeting in the labor union hall, and off and on met for two years uh, in a way that allowed peer group counseling to happen. Indeed, the professionals were in charge of it and shaped it and made sure certain people didn't dominate the conversation, etc., um, but in fact, the people 
were very helpful to each other because they went back to the community together. Therapists go home. We are impermanent. We are uh, like a foster parent for a while. We are temporary. We have to remember that. And what's missing right now for healing is the community togetherness. Yes, COVID prevented that. But as, as this danger lessens, we need to get back together, get off our devices, stop texting, and actually talk to somebody, uh, either on the phone or in real life, and make human connections. Human connection is the, the solution, is the um, balm for anxiety and sadness. And sadness is normal right now because we've lost a lot. Right. And speaking of the topic of resilience as well, which you mentioned that many individuals do have and have shown so much resilience over this time period, resilience is often characterized as this very desirable trait. And it is, it can help us endure some extremely difficult situations. But in your book, you also write about that there might be some instances where there might be some limitations of being unconditionally resilient. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about what some of those limitations might be. The caution about resilience, expecting resilience all the time, is that, um, and I'm talking pre-pandemic now, is that we always expect the same people to be resilient, poor people, people in poverty, people uh, of uh, people of color, people, women, let's say, in families are the ones who need to be resilient. We need to stop that um, aiming at the same groups all the time to be resilient. Uh, it's a good thing, for example, when something happens worldwide and people um, manage to get through it. Uh, we're see- seeing that in Ukraine right now, extreme resilience, which is necessary at the moment. But overall, resilience is should not be required of the same people all the time. And you need to know that the field grew out of uh, studying poor children living in the streets uh, in Hawaii. And and they found that some of those children were resilient, were competent, and had a good life. Well, that's good. I'm glad. Okay. I'm very glad of that. But we can't expect, um, we don't want poverty. We should also work as hard to get rid of poverty. So that's the downside of resilience. You need to be very careful about how we use it. Uh, and we can't expect the same people to be resilient all the time. And you see, that brings in a power issue, doesn't it? People in power don't feel they need to be resilient. And that's why uh, I'm talking about a global level, a country level, a family level. The people who have the power in those systems do not uh, want to be resilient. They expect the other people to be resilient. That should not be. It should be more equal. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the 
we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like that resilience certainly is helpful and is useful, but we shouldn't rely on it exclusively to the point where we ignore any issues that might exist in our system or environment or place the onus on completely on individuals to survive mm-hmm. or find a way out of their individual yes. situations. We have to look at power differentials in the family. We have to look at power differentials in the community and in the world. And and you will see that um, there's a differential, therefore, in the expectation of resilience. But on the plus side, let me say this, that many, many people have survived this pandemic with great resilience and that they have come up with other creative ways of being, you know, the fact that so many people were baking bread was an indicator of resilience because they couldn't control the situation around them, but they could control that recipe and those couple hours of baking bread and then have a wonderful outcome, uh, a tasty outcome. Uh, So, and that's just one of many, many examples I see of people having changed their ways uh, to adapt, to be resilient and flexible in a time of danger. Um, I, I myself, at 87, have learned more about technology than I thought I would uh, out of necessity because uh, Zoom becomes the only way to see the faces of the people in your family for holidays and for birthdays and so on, and for professional reasons. So many things come out of um, bad things, uh, if, if you pay attention to resilience. And I think clinically, um, therapists should look at resilience, should assess a resilience as much as they assess symptoms. Mm-hmm. It sounds like these ideas of resilience and ambiguous loss require a lot of, you know, holding in mind different ends of a situation or often contradictory statements or trying to grapple with seemingly like paradoxical situations. And you have a section in your book about both and thinking. And when I first started reading that section, my initial reaction was, oh, you know, this is dialectical thinking or, or what we hear about when we talk about like dialectical behavior therapy Um, using and statements instead of but statements. However, you then went on to clarify that uh, both and thinking and dialectical thinking are not quite the same. So uh, how are they different and and what is the utility of of both and thinking in our current world that we're living in? Well, as we know, with dialectical thinking, there's a thesis and an antithesis, which eventually leads to a synthesis. Uh, both of those um, ideas. With with ambiguous loss, when a person is missing either physically or psychologically, and that continues, there is no synthesis. Um, They are both gone and not for sure. Um, They may be dead, and they may both be dead and not for sure. 
with dementia, for example, she is here. She is both here and gone and so on. So you have the thesis and the antithesis, but with ambiguous loss, there is no synthesis unless, unless the person uh, gets well again. There's a miracle and the dementia goes away, which, as we know, it doesn't. Um, or unless there's a miracle with physical ambiguous loss and the soldier comes walking out of the jungle or the child is found. Um, and that's not really a synthesis. That's just uh, you suddenly have certainty. Uh, so dialectical behavior therapy is not quite right. It's close. I think it could be adapted for this as long as you understand there's no synthesis. But in fact, with ambiguous loss, you see the key is this. You have to learn how to live with unanswered questions. You have to learn how to live with not knowing. And that is very hard in a culture that is mastery-oriented, such as ours. It's easier in an Eastern culture, which may be, uh, may be more amenable to having no answers. In this country, we don't like it. We're very good at solving problems and fixing things. And as I've said, we, you know, we are working in outer space, putting a camera so far away that it's never been that far away before. This is mastery at its best and wonderful. So I'm all for mastery. But when it comes to human relationships, mastery isn't always the best way to proceed. Sometimes you have to bend. Sometimes you have to accept that there is no answer to the problem. And that's a little harder for us in this country, but we can learn it with both and thinking and embracing the paradox. And may I say this, you know, a, a study improvisation, that's what that's about. Uh, and life is really about improvisation, isn't it? We can't always have our way. Yes, definitely. And also, we have to improvise and find different ways and be flexible in how we become resilient and how we're going to cope and deal with the situations that are placed in front of us, sometimes out of our control, especially if we, yes. we have seen recently yes. as well. Absolutely right. Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, you also discuss several different guidelines for building resilience um, as well in your book, and you show that these guidelines can be interconnected, they can happen out of order. Um, one specific link that you emphasize in these different guidelines is the one between finding meaning and also discovering new hope. There are several others that you write about, uh, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the importance of the relationship between meaning and hope and anything else you might like to add for the listeners about how to build resilience in this time? Well, I actually borrowed the link between meaning and hope from Viktor Frankl, who wrote The Search for Meaning uh, as a result of his experience in the concentration camps during the Nazi period of World War II. Um, and he, he believed that the people who had no hope and no meaning in their suffering 
uh, would die uh, faster than the people who didn't. Uh, that is, the people who had some meaning uh, and hope, even in that horrible situation, were able to hang on longer. Um, his own meaning and hope came from keeping his wife psychologically present, even though she was in the building next door and, and eventually died. Um, he kept thinking of her and his thought of her uh, gave meaning to his suffering and therefore hope for perhaps a life beyond hers that would continue once this was over. For me, meaning and hope are connected in ways that um, are somewhat different because I'm talking about ambiguous loss, though he certainly had ambiguous losses too, and clear-cut losses. Um, what I'm saying is that the ambiguity makes finding meaning difficult. Uh, and, you, and I do believe, and all the research on grief today says we need meaning in order to have a normal grief, um, in order to live with grief, which is the normal way. Uh, so how do you make sense out of something that has no answer? How do you make sense of somebody whose child has been kidnapped and you don't know if they're alive or dead? How do you make sense of dementia where the person is sitting in front of you and they no longer know who you are? It's very, very difficult. And, and that's where the both-and thinking helps to make meaning out of it because there isn't one truth when somebody is missing. Um, the closest to the truth you can get is... Uh, they are probably dead and maybe not. Um, and with dementia, she is here and she is gone. So that those, um, those kinds of, those ways of thinking make it possible to live with the immense stress and trauma of ambiguous loss. It's a stress issue. How do you cope with the stress like a fingernail on a blackboard um, a, a noise that makes you uncomfortable, anxious all the time, maybe for your lifetime. And as I wrote in the book, Across the Generations, uh, when I was talking about slavery. So meaning and hope are connected. And what Frankel said, I agree with. There is no hope without meaning, and there is no meaning without hope. They are inextricably linked together. And if we think about that, for example, during COVID, during these long years of, of being worried, we had to find meaning in it. Now, some people, most people found meaning in it by getting vaccinated and wearing a mask, finding how they could control as much as they could for safety. Other people found meaning in it by shutting down with closures saying, it doesn't exist, it's a hoax. I don't need to wear a mask. So that was their meaning. And of course, we know it was a false meaning, uh, but it was their meaning. And the hope is for change, that we may have learned something that, oh my gosh, I learned how to bake bread during this period. Oh, I learned more technology during this period. I learned who, who loved me 
and stayed in touch with me despite the difficulty. So, so we have meaning and hope tied together, and each person has to describe that in their own words. There is no one general description because what what is meaningful to me may not be meaningful to the other person. Um, therefore, therapists have to be very careful because, uh, let me say, for example, in Fukushima, Japan, where there was an earthquake uh, in 2011, there is a phone booth that survived the um, um, tsunami. Uh, and even though it was wrecked, they have fixed it up a bit because people tended to go into it to call their missing loved ones. Even children go into that phone booth to call their missing parent. Um, that needs to be normalized. And mothers whose babies were washed out of their arms say there's a, there's a kind woman on another island who is taking care of my baby. That's resilience. That's hope. That's a sliver of hope, you see. Um, that's meaning and hope coming together in a way that we, who are more rational, may not agree with, but we must, we must take it. We must accept it as real for the person who is making meaning out of their loss by calling up the lost person every now and then. Many Asian people have altars in their homes um, for the, their ancestors. And the, the Thai restaurant down the street puts food in the window periodically for their ancestors. We, we have to accept that. Sometimes meaning and hope are things that wouldn't be real for us, but they're real for other people. Now, there are two things I look for or I, I um, have a line. One is, if the meaning is I need to destroy myself, I need to harm myself, I would intervene. And if the meaning is I need retribution, I'm going to shoot the person who harmed my child, I would intervene. So self-harm or harm to others is when you would intervene. But other than that, I frankly am heartened by the creativity of people who find meaning and hope and link it together. Many times the hope comes uh, at least in this country, for people to work on projects that prevent this terrible thing to happen to others. Um, parents of missing children will begin changing laws, will begin working to make it easier to find missing children, and so on. Uh, just as my family worked on the March of Dimes. Um, so purpose is also part of hope. And and there's a sliver of hope in most everything, um, and we need to find it. Yes, and I really love how you brought up Viktor Frankl as well, actually, when I was reading, um, even before you mentioned him in the book, too, uh, it did remind me of his book a little bit, which I only read uh, his book, Man's Search for Meaning, for the first time just a few months ago. So what a coincidence. Um, and it's still been on my mind um, ever since. So, um, and I'm really interested to read some of his other works as well, hopefully um, when I can find the time. Um, but certainly that there's this strong connection between hope and 
meaning and it might look different for everybody and that what we consider as quote-unquote normal grief is going to be entirely up to the individual and as you mentioned short of there being a risk of harm um, that shows so much creativity and strength as well yes Mm -hmm. And of course, self-loathing, we don't want that. I mean, there are symptoms to look for when people do need professional help. Um, But the majority of people um, can live with loss, uh, endure the pain that comes up every now and then because, or the sadness, I should say, which is normal. Sadness is normal, and the help for sadness is human connection. Depression is not normal. I'm talking about a full-blown depression. Is not normal and requires professional and perhaps medical help. We need to know the difference. And right now, I think we have pathologized grief. We have ignored the nuances of loss, that there are different kinds of loss. Uh, and we have pathologized grief. We And since something so terrible has happened to us the past two years, um, we cannot be pathologizing everybody out there. Um, yes, they're distressed. Yes, they're anxious. Uh, yes, they're sad. But these are normal reactions to an abnormal situation. We need to remember that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, and that everyone is going to have their own response and find ways on their own to try their best to manage and also move forward. Yes. And the diversity of reactions is interesting. We all can learn from that. We can expand our own repertoire of coping if we pay attention to how other people are coping in ways that are really very creative. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, I also wanted to ask you, um, in addition to devoting your research career and your clinical career to working with families with ambiguous loss and writing about it in this book. Um, You also share very bravely and openly in your writing and also even in our conversation so far today about some of the personal deaths and losses that you have experienced um, in your lifetime. And I'm wondering, why did it feel important to share in this way and what message do you hope readers and listeners will gain not only from your academic work in this area, but also your personal story as well? That's a good question. Um, I was unsure about doing that uh, because I came from an academic background when you didn't do that. But as I said before, I'm now in my late 80s and I was writing this book. Uh, I think it is research-wise and academically sound, but I used an informal voice. Um, and I did that intentionally because I wanted the general public to read the book as well as professionals. Um, now, I, as I was writing, as I told you, uh, no, I don't think I did tell you, um, I, be, I thought about the book, The Myth of Closure, already in 2015. Uh, I had to set it aside because my husband grew weaker and no longer could walk. And I needed to be a caregiver. So that's what I did for several years. And, and, and then he died in 2020 um, of a stroke, not COVID. 
Uh, he was 88. And after a bit, I picked it up again. I picked up the manuscript again. Um, I was alone. I was sequestered. Indeed, my family would zoom in or call or text and drop groceries by my door. Um, but I was alone, and it seemed to me the best time now to finish this book. I felt like it. Uh, but it didn't feel honest to exclude what was happening at the time. I thought back to the um, our gurus, our teachers, historical teachers, that I was criticizing for writing one way academically and in their personal um, writings, they, they told more honest stories. Um, so I decided to combine them and insert what I felt like saying at the time that, that it was happening. Uh, I thought it was dishonest to the reader not to say something about what I, the writer, was experiencing at the time. Uh, and I wanted it to be congruent. I wanted my personal feelings and actions about loss to be congruent with what I was writing about. I hope it was. Um, there may be more to say about that, but I didn't feel it would be honest to leave it out. I think it, it truly makes the book so much more impactful and also um personal and, and gives a good sense to the readers. And it sounds like too that um, from what you mentioned that this book was your meaning in that time when we were talking yes. about meaning yes. and hope earlier. So writing is a good way, at least for me uh, and people who like to write, writing is a good way to discover your meaning and loss because you're working it through Finding, making sense of a loss does not come easily. Uh, and especially uh, with a child, the loss of a child or a baby, uh, a murder in the family, a suicide. These are very, very difficult to find meaning. Uh, and maybe the meaning in those losses is that they will always be meaningless. They will never make sense. And that too is a meaning. Uh, and, and I think it's good to identify it that way. Uh, so other people find meaning in other ways, writing poetry, making music, uh, doing physical exercise. I would never tell anybody how to find meaning. Um, some people find meaning in gardening. Um, it, it's up to the person, but you should discover your own way to find meaning in even a senseless loss. Um, and, and then... Uh, to move on to something new to hope for. And I, I guess I didn't say this before. I want to clarify. I'm talking about new hope, something new to hope for. You can't hope for the person with dementia to come back. You can't hope for the missing person to come back. You can have a sliver of hope, and I encourage you to do that. Um, but you have to recognize that the chances of, let's say, soldiers missing in action are, are narrow. It doesn't happen very often. And the missing people around the world, as I work with the International Committee of the Red Cross and the United Nations, um, people who have been disappeared um, by the state rarely come back. So hope is slim. 
So you need something new to hope for. And that's different for everybody. You have to discover it. And that takes time. That won't happen overnight. But we all need something new to hope for if we have an ambiguous loss or even if we have a clear-cut death in the family. And that might involve a new purpose in life, uh, memorializing of the lost person, or simply living a good life to honor them. So it sounds like that an inherent part of new hope is also change. And this leads me very nicely to a very powerful quote that stood out to me from the closing chapter of your book that I would like to read for our listeners. And you wrote that uh, this historical pattern of turmoil followed by change reminds us that loss begets change and change begets disorder and stress and they beget change again. So why is it important for us to remember this message and what does this mean for us moving forward as we continue on? Well, having, having lived a long time and being able to look back on life, you see that life is never a status quo, at status quo. It is, in fact, always changing. Now, you may have a status quo for a while, let's say peace, peace in the world for a while, or peace in your family for a while, or a good income in your family for a while, uh, or um, uh, peace in the household for a while, um, or in the community. And then something shifts and sets it off again. For example, uh, the period that we have now reminds me of the 1960s and 70s when everything was in turmoil. But in the book, I go back even further. Uh, and um, when there were pandemics in ancient times and so on. And then the Renaissance followed. Uh, and then it got bad again. And then something good follows. Uh, that is the rhythm of, of the human race. Uh, status quo may be there for a while. We should enjoy it. And then something disturbs it. Uh, it could be a pandemic. It could be a war. It could be, who knows, the climate change. Uh, and, and then we struggle again. And this is the rhythm of the human race and what I think will be happening now, by the way, we have been in chaos for some time now. Um, and, and I think something good may come of it. Uh, some recognition of the value of doing something about our environment, the value of doing something about police brutality, the value of seeing each other as brothers and sisters and not, not people who are um, strange to us and therefore we don't want to talk to them or in fact we might do harm to them. We are all in this together and maybe after all this suffering and chaos, I, my prediction is that there may be a good time coming. It won't be tomorrow, <laughs> but um, I think we've been shaken up, let's say. 
And some people call that the tipping point. I call it a paradigm shift. Um, when you, there's chaos for a while, and then it levels off into a time of more humane thinking, a better time. Mm-hmm. Yes. And also, I won't uh, give away the final lines of your book here to our listeners, but I will say that they really struck me and you ended the book uh, quite brilliantly. Um, And also, this is a question that we ask everyone who interviews with us on our podcast, which almost feels a little bit unfair to ask given that you so recently published a new book and you have contributed so much to our field and our profession over the years. Um, But what are you working on now or next? Well, I I vowed I wasn't going to write academically anymore. And now it turns out there was a request from some people in Europe connected to the United Nations. Um, And with a humanitarian request, I never say no. So I am currently working on an article called Names Without Bodies and Bodies Without Names ambiguous loss and closure after enforced disappearance. Uh, I have a co-author, Simon Robbins, and uh, I'm always ready to help humanitarian efforts as long as I'm able. But other than that, I'm going to travel for a while, if I can, right, if COVID allows. And then chances are maybe write some shorter essays and so on. That sounds really lovely, and I know that so many of us are so eager to travel to find that sense of human connection again, away from technology, away from our devices. Well, thank you so much once again for speaking with me today. Um, To everyone listening, um, I highly recommend Dr. Boss's newest book. It really acknowledges everything that we have gone through recently over the past several years. And thank you so much um, for being here with me today. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Jolie. Thank you.